I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, Find out about special live events or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Welcome to And The Update Is. I am your host, Paige MacDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Republic Records has appointed Wendy Goldstein and Jim Ropo as co-presidents. ASM Global is expanding their footprint in the Asia-Pacific region with the announcement of their new regional headquarters in Singapore. The AI-powered music platform Amy has raised $20 million in the Series B funding round. In September, the pop legends ABBA announced their return after 40 years with a brand new studio album called Voyage, which sold in excess of 1 million combined units globally in its first week. Amazon Music and the Featured Artist Coalition have announced the launch of the FAC Step Up Fund. The FAC Step Up Fund will provide financial support and a broader package of benefits for projects of up to 10 up-and-coming artists. CM.com has launched a UK ticketing platform headed by Paul Everett. Dua Lipa has announced her new project called Service 95. Service 95 is, quote, a global style, culture, and society concierge service that offers a curation of lists, recommendations, stories, information, thoughts, perspectives, and conversations. AWOL has launched an audience development team headed by Aaron Bugaki. Video games publisher 2K has partnered with SoundCloud to give emerging artists the chance to have their original songs added to the soundtrack for the popular basketball game NBA 2K22. Adele's 30 has had the biggest opening week for any album in the UK this year. The estate of South African musician Johnny Clegg has inked a global publishing deal with Sheer Publishing. The LA-based NFT firm known as Unblocked has launched its first digital collectibles in partnership with Primary Wave Music and hip-hop group Cypress Hill. A big thank you to Haley Evans of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's episode of And The Writer Is.
Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's Canuck is the kind of music legend that owns a hockey team. He has so many awards that they even use his Grammys as hockey pucks. In truth, he traded in his failed professional hockey career for selling over 60 million albums. He literally does residencies at arenas because why not? He can. He sells them out. He's so classic that his version of classics are now classic versions. But he's also written hits, like the kind of hits that other people cover and make hits. He is more important to Christmas than elves. All the way from British Columbia, this man dedicates as much time to charity as he does to his incomparable career because he's genuinely one of the best people I know. And the writer is my friend, Michael Bublé. Hey, man, that's really nice. Thank you. <laughs> I feel the same way about you, man. That might be the uh, that might be the most uh, accurate um, intro I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. I like that it's natural. It's you know, it's funny when you when they you know when you sit because you've had to do it. You sit during your own intros, and they go through all of this weird like this the stuff like the like uh, you know what I mean. Wikipedia, and then you just sit there cringing and going like, oh, God, that was much better. Yeah. I, feel I, miss, like I miss you, man. I miss you too, man. How's, how's, how's life up, up north? Good, good. It's weird. Just, you know, like you guys are ahead of us now in America because here in Canada where it's like I remember talking to you a few months, like five or six months ago, and I was like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. It's it's really rough there. And but here, you know, it's great, man. Here it's, we're out, you know, we're hanging and doing, everything's pretty normal. And now it's like the opposite. Now it's like, we are locked down and there's not enough vaccine. And anyway, so it's weird. I'm, I'm making a record. Um, and, but in the most different way I've ever made a record, I'm basically in my underwear in my kitchen. And uh, it's the most different process. I'm working with Greg Wells, by the way, who was so excited about me talking to you. And he was like, oh, say hi to Ross. What a great guy. Everybody wants me to say hi to you, by the way. I've got like a list of so many people that love you, man. So um, it's, been, it's been weird, man. But it's, you know what? It's, it's been nice to be able to, to be creative, even though I'm not able to sit there with guys. It's yeah. never the same, man, on Zoom. But it's still fun to write. Are you, are you writing well over Zoom? No, no, it's not. It's just not the same, man. It isn't the same as getting to sit in the room. And it's, it's such a different process, as you know. And a lot of the stuff is now so back and forth. It's like you have an idea and then you send the idea and then the guy sends back his ideas. And it's like that telephone game, you know what I mean? Where I feel like it takes having a lot more trust in your co-writers because you sort of have to allow them to kind of go places with it and then you get it back and you try to massage it, but it's definitely not the same as sitting in the room. Yeah. Well, How let's start. It? I mean, what's it like for you? Cause I know you're writing all the time and I mean, now you're getting in rooms, but what was it like when you were like locked no, down? And- I'm not doing in rooms. And to be honest, actually like, I really like it. <laughs> I love it. Really? Yeah. I mean, I've got, all these instruments and piano and stuff. Like, I feel like if I went into, you know, when we go back up to write, 
you know, I, I feel like I would want to bring my whole system because you start to learn how to you you kind of produce while you go as you you know as, there's no such thing as like a a top liner right now yeah you know it's like you have to kind of do a little bit of everything I feel like and so it's you know production shops get dude I think like know. I've talked to you I talked to you when I first met you and we started like pitching songs to each other and things that we'd done I felt like you as a songwriter had such a great advantage because of your product producer chops and and more than that because of your voice because I felt like you could take good songs and the way that you would sing them it would be great I actually talked to Cara DeGuardi about it once and I asked her I was like so how do you know what do you feel is like your your one of your real things that you're and she was like oh I think I can sing I sing a lot of these demos and sometimes I can turn an average demo into something amazing and I it stuck with me and then ever since then I've met people that like you who've really been great singers and um and with the ability to do that and to play you know to have production over it you can really sort of expound upon your concept your idea and really make it far more palatable and 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 sexy for whoever's listening i'm 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 actually working now with michael pollock nice who's a great great i mean what a super talented guy and it's the same thing man he like he'll send me something that he's done and he's he's got a great voice. It's like he, it's, it's sometimes it's hard for, to, you know what I mean? For me to, to really get a grip on, is this that, is it that great? Or is it that he's singing it that great? It's really interesting when you, you and I've talked about vowel sounds and you're, you're somebody who gets phrasing and, and phrasing is a huge part of the way you sing. It's not, um, uh, I tend to sing like a metronome. Mm-hmm. You know, I like things really tight, and it's almost like I'm sheet music. And then you <laughs> take the, you know, versus somebody who takes the sheet music and does, you know, something, you know, who who expounds on the 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 writing of it. And you know, it's like you you kind of your range kind of reminds me of like what Billie Holiday was famous for doing. You know, it's not like you're you're not singing five octaves; you're singing. You have a way of of making every note count. Well, you know? tell 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 the the listeners what you mean when you talk about singing on the vowels, so they kind of get what you're talking about. Okay, so like we were talking about how I, I'll write um, in in sure, like we were writing, writing we're writing a song right now. Yeah, and if you do the word like e and you hold it out, you have to like you literally have to clench your jaw and and like if you if you're listening to this and you sing the word like e, it's hard to do versus like oh or ah or you know the the softer sounds of ooh and all these things that allow you to to sing longer and and louder and more tone versus you know. So yeah, so when we get time. when we get to the like when we're writing and we get to those and you and I are say writing this song that we're working on right now or one of the songs we're working on, it's fine when we're in say in the verse and it's small and the dynamics are are, are low, but when I get to that point where we want to blast and get to that say the chorus when we open up and we want it to soar, it's so much easier to sing. Um, say let's just say my way, right? That's the, my. It's if it was an E or a, you know what I mean. It would Frank wouldn't sound the same. I mean, obviously my we is, <laughs> but I mean, there's a, a big difference between 
the the I and my way as opposed to e where you have to yeah. like lock it up and shut it down. And sometimes as a singer, it's tough when the vowel change happens because it doesn't allow you to blast the note because your mouth is closed and you're kind of g- g- compressing. But it's weird. Some of the the vowel sounds and weird, um, f- you know. What makes like Alanis Morissette songs hits or the rhyme schemes cool is that mm-hmm. the vowel sounds are all messed up and the the emphasis is always on the wrong syllable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's it's one of those things where you singing sometimes singing the wrong vowel starts to make it gives gives the song a signature. Sure. Because oh, totally. it's so it's so weird or totally. so such a, I mean, yeah, every song is its own beast. Right. I mean, when we were, when you and I and, and Johan were working on, uh, uh, today's yesterday's tomorrow, I mean, one of my favorite, it's funny, you were talking about how you like to have things in the pocket. And I was talking to Greg Wells about it yesterday. Cause we had brought that song up and, um, my favorite part of the song was the phrasing was how tight, do you know what I mean? It's simple, simple melody, like this beautiful descending line, but, that maybe my patience and my motivation to play on a separate and it was like so punchy. It was hard to sing. It was like hard to get it out that fast. But when it sat in the pocket correctly, it was I it felt so good. It like popped so hard when it locked in. Uh is your memory really good with songs? Can you sing songs that any of your catalog? If if I if if you know, can I just pick out any song from any one of your albums and can you sing it? Dude, what's weird is forget about that because I think that's pretty easy. You can probably pick any Great American Songbook standard. I mean, I would probably get nine out of ten, and I would probably know all the words, which is weird because I can't remember. Like, my wife makes fun of me because like we'll call like like insurance company and they'll be like, uh, you know, uh, now call the number seven seven eight five two four five two six four. And I look at my wife and she sees the fear in my eyes because she knows I'll never remember the first three digits. Like I can't, like it's just gone. Yet somehow when I hear music, I hear it playing back to me in my head. This is going to sound really funny, but I hear not only like the song, but I hear the artist. I mean, like a carbon copy of it playing over and over. And if I like it, it will haunt me. Like, I'm sure you have that same thing. Like, it'll haunt me where, like, I'll go to bed and I can't, it doesn't stop. And it'll just go around and around. And then somehow the words will sit there. Yet, you're talking to a man who sings with three teleprompters on stage because my fear is always, like, completely blanking. But because... Because have I have the teleprompters, forgotten? I never forget because I don't. I know it's there in case I have to look. But if it wasn't there, I would just poop my pants and I would be I would be done. What is that? First of all, when you said that, oh, I'm sure you also do that. To be honest, no, I can't. I can't remember any words of any song. Really? Nothing. Nothing. I cannot remember words to any songs Dude, it's unless funny. I have like massive muscle memory. My you know, grandpa like, used to sit and play me all these old records and. He would just be fascinated, you know. He'd 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 like call it a song. I'd go. It's funny. He passed away uh, now a couple of years ago, and he he is my best friend. And I used to wake up every morning in Vancouver, and drive down to the McDonald's, and me and him and his buddies, uh, the McDonald's gang, we would go and have coffee, and we would talk about these great artists and songs and stuff. And one of the games he loved to play is he would like go, "Hey guys, call, just call out any song," and they'd they'd like. 
you know, they'd go, hey, you won't know this one, 1923. And he would, they would like, you know, you know, and they'd do it. And I would like, I'd nail it and sing it all. And they'd all be fascinated. So, you know, I, I know a lot of your past is something people can look up, but, um, you know, I don't know if the McDonald's gang is something that you Wikipedia. So let's just go from the the a little bit from the beginning, sure. um, and we'll do the Cliff's Notes version because I know some of it is is findable. But um, uh, tell me about your parents. So uh, I grew up in a really beautiful, you know, middle class neighborhood called Burnaby. My father was a, a fisherman, a commercial salmon fisherman, and his father was a commercial salmon fisherman. And his father before, uh, his my, my great grandfather had immigrated from Italy. All my family had immigrated from either Italy or uh, places in Croatia. And uh, so it was a fishing family, pretty much. And uh, no one in our family had had anything to do with entertainment. We had no nothing no connection no so i always loved music i always loved music and like any other kid i like you know the music of the day and uh, but when i turned 12 or 13 maybe 11 my grandfather uh, had uh, it's interesting i should go the back the fisherman side grandfather or the your mom's my side? mom my mom's dad uh-huh and uh i should say this i think and I mean, people will laugh, but my first, I mean, I think the introduction to the style that I really loved was Christmas. I think uh-huh. it was uh, Bing Crosby. That record was played through the house all the time. And uh, I, I mean, I just thought the musician, I mean, even at that age, I understood they, the, I didn't understand. I couldn't, I couldn't articulate why, but I mean, his voice, his time, along with the arrangements, the musicianship. I mean, that stuff swung so hard. Um, and I think it sort of, without me ever knowing it, it started to make me fall in love with not just music, but that type of music. And as much as I love, and I loved like, I, man, I, I love the Beastie Boys more than anybody I knew. And I, I love Brian Adams and I love like, you know, there was a, a million kinds of music, but more and more when that music would come into my life, I felt there was this bond. I had this special passion and love and understanding. Uh, and so when I was about 13, my grandfather was at his house and we used to sit at the house and sit cross-legged on the floor of his rec room. And at that time he had this big kind of double, triple deck old record player that he, someone had helped connect to a, to a cassette player that he could record his records onto the cassette. And this was like, for him, like, this was awesome. So, and he, I remember he played a song called It Had to Be You by this cat named Vic Dana. And I remember hearing the song and thinking, wow, this is, this is really a great song, you know, and this is, man, this moves me. And um, I remember re- learning it and learning the words to it. And then later that year, I said to him, Grandpa, you know, I love this stuff. And so he would start putting all of the songs from... Frank and Dean, and a lot of Dean Martin, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, the Mills Brothers, the Ink Spots, Louis Armstrong, Prima, Keely Smith. And he would start to put them all on these cassettes and he would make me full on, you know, 50 minute, whatever they are on each side. And I would listen to them and I would just listen every night and I would sing along and I'd learn and I just love them. Like my favorite was Dean and then I loved young Frank. Um, 
And, um, and I, I think I was about 13 or something. And I said to him, you know, grandpa, I really want to sing this. Like, I, I think I can sing this. And my voice was changing a little bit. And I, I you know, I was, I still had a pretty high voice. And, uh, and so he went on a cruise with my grandma to Los Angeles. A lot of people don't know this, but this is kind of how it all kind of started. He went on a cruise on a cruise ship and somehow he had found this early version of karaoke, which was just sort of starting. And they had these kind of karaoke tracks on cassette. And he came back with all these standards with like these Nat King Cole and, and like these hit songs that, that were karaoke versions. And my uncle Kelly was in a rock band. Uh, and he went out and he brought me uh, some old kind of monitor that he had like a, you know, he brought me an old mic and he brought me this, this kind of speaker. And uh, my parents set it up in our living room. And dude, from morning till night, I would just sit in my living room and I would sing karaoke to these songs. And I would like just over and over again. And that's kind of how the love began. How old were you at that point? 13, about 13. And so I was working on my dad's fishing boat through that all that time from about 13 till I was, gosh, 19, 20. But starting at about 16, 16, 15, 16, I, I had done it so much and I'd started doing contests and other things. And I was like, this is what I, I think I can do this, you know? And, and weirdly, like that's like the scariest thing for a mom and dad to hear. We're doing contests in, you know, it's a, how, far, how far is it from Vancouver? What? Where you grew up? Where you, like the town you grew up in? No, it's 20 minutes, 15 minutes. It's 20 minutes. So like when you're doing these competitions, are you doing yeah. like competitions in the city? Like, yeah, where man. Are you doing like I would go to like bars and I would, I had a fake ID. So I would. But everybody knew you still look young. So I can only imagine like. I had a fake ID. I mean, the first contest I won, the woman who ended up running the contest ended up calling me. And she said, you know, you've won the contest, which is the good news. The bad news is you lied about your age and you weren't allowed in the bar. You're not of drinking age and we cannot, you cannot be the winner of this contest. And I was so upset. And she said, well, the good news is she said, there's a youth talent contest next year at the PE, and, and, you know, you're old enough to do that. And I was so mad, man. And then, uh, I was really crying. And I mean, dude, I used to go and I worked for a company called balloon action. Um, they would pay me 20 bucks, sometimes 40 bucks. And I would go and they'd hire me to sing like singing telegrams and things like that. So I would like I would <laughs> I would show up to like restaurants and and they'd surprise some poor lady, you know, some young, you know, 25 year old girl at the table. And and I would sing, you know, happy birthday. Or, and then I'd sing, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever song they wanted me to sing some, you know, pop song. Or, did know. you dress up? Oh, yeah, um, man. Like, terribly in my dad's jacket. There's a bunch of pictures I have. And I'm always in these like jackets of my dad's that I thought looked really cool. And I'm such a, I'm a skinny little dork with this bad, big bouffant hairdo. And you can see the jacket is like way too big. <laughs> and, uh, when you're but, in like junior high and high school and you're, you're the guy who's singing these kinds of songs, like when everyone else is listening to Beastie Boys, are you the coolest kid in school or are you not the coolest kid in school? Uh, you're not the coolest. I mean, I was uh, the funny kid, you know, I was like, you know, it was, it wasn't like terribly rough or terribly great. I, I wasn't, you know, there was not a lot of girlfriends and I mean, I wanted a lot of girlfriends and I tried, but you know, there was at that age, it was like, you know, I'm going out with Angie for two days 
And then it was yeah. like, Mike, I just can't be with you anymore. <laughs> and uh, but we never kissed, you know. Like, yeah, um, that was pretty serious. Two days is uh, yeah, quite. A I was commitment. like, my, yeah. So no, it was weird, man. And I was insecure about it, yet I was proud about it. Like I, there was this sense of pride that, like every kid, everybody, every human, we want to be different and special and unique. And that was my 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 way of being unique and different. And um, and I liked that. And my friends would make fun of me. And I had one friend, one of my still one of my best friends, and he he is a good singer. His name was Brad Openshaw, and he. Uh, so we get on the bus, you know, in grade like eight, so 13, 14 years old, grade eight, nine, and I remember him like you know, every hey, come on guys, sing something, sing something, and Brad would go like Aruba, Jamaica, <laughs> and then all the girls like. Oh. and then uh, he'd go like, hey, you you sing, okay, now Bubla, you sing something, you know. And I'd go like, you know, I missed the Saturday dance, heard they crowd at the floor. And Brad would go, dude, you got a fake singing voice, man. Like, what's that fake thing you're putting on your voice? And I, he'd always make fun of me because it was like I already knew the style I was, you know, I was doing. And they would just all kind of make fun of me. So um, he still calls it. He's still, he's like, dude, you're still doing that fake singing? <laughs> Are you guys close? Like, do you guys actually talk a lot still? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dude, I have the same friends that I had since I was five. That's amazing. Basically the same group, man. The same group. That. And it's like we hate each other so much, but we love each other so much. Of course. It's truly brothers. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we are truly, when we hang out, I look at them and I go, how can we treat each other so much shittier than we treat everybody else in our lives? Yeah. That's that's what good friends do. Yeah. Um, it was funny, like I read the intro to to Jackie and I was like, Am I am I am I busting his balls too much? And then I was like, wait a minute, no, I feel like if you're friends with Mike, then you know that that's like that's your love language. Oh, of course, man. That's <laughs> of course. Um I have one of my best friends, yeah. uh his name Kako, and he's in Argentina. And I don't think Kako has ever called me by my name. Ever. Ever. Like why? Well, what does he call you? Every single time I answer the phone, he said, "Hey, pussy." <laughs> and it doesn't matter if my friend, my parents, or nothing. It's like, and and I've gone past the point of ever saying, "Like, dude, can you just, can you just, you yeah. know?" Because no. that only makes it worse. So no, you no. just have to let. No, no, no. It... And the huge smile on his face with the self satisfaction of knowing that he gets to call me that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a big. So you know you're. You're 16, you're 18, you graduate high school. Yeah. And it's not like um, you didn't go from like high school to being world famous. Mm. You know, you have this, the goal, what's the goal at that point of somebody who sings like you? Oh, uh, the goal was, I mean, for me, simple. I mean, how could it not be world fame? You know, how but nobody was doing, nobody was doing that. There were no, <laughs> no. world, there I was. Think- that's the dumbest thing to want to do at that point. Like nobody else is doing that. Thank God I was so stupid, man. Really. I think about it a lot, actually, Ross. I really do. Cause I, I think about how, um, I mean, I really do think about how silly and I mean, and I really believed it, man. I really like, I really thought, man, this is, this is going to happen for me. And it, and it was easy to 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 be to live on potential. Like so many artists out there, so many people listening, so many writers, so many musicians. I mean, when you're young, 
the, you know, the potential is so great. And you know, you know, you just need that, you know, I just need that one, if that one person could see me and maybe get me to the next person. And, and there's a million of those moments. And, um, but there aren't a million of those moments in, in Canada, I feel like. There weren't. I mean, listen, for me, man, this, this, this story got, like every story does. I mean, so my first ever gig, I think, one of the first ever was, uh, I was about 17, I think. And they had let me into a, a bar. Uh, and I, I had a, 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 the guy that was playing at the bar was this incredible pianist. Um, and his name was uh, Linton Garner. And he was, at the time, he was about 80. And he was the big brother of Errol Garner. I don't know if you know who that is. I don't. One of the greatest jazz pianists who's ever ever oh, lived. Okay, okay, he, okay. He's uh, Errol. His brother Errol wrote many songs, but one of the big songs is Misty. You oh know, wow! Look at me, hey, that's I'm a Johan. Johan named his daughter after. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah that's and crazy, um, and so that was like my first ever paid kind of gig, and I thought, okay, I'm on the road. This is it, man. Like people are going to see me and someone's going to see me. And, and what was interesting for me was there was a young kid across, literally across the street. And he was a little younger than me. And I knew that he would do like these, I don't know exactly the time, but I know it was very near the same time. And there was this, people would always talk about this really funny young kid from Vancouver who would do these little sets. And when Robin Williams was there and you'd hear about it and his name was Seth Rogen. And, uh, huh. Of course, he, you know, it, it's crazy that what happened to him. And, uh, but for me, it was like that. And then I started working at the bars. And then all of a sudden, I started, you know, the musicians would hire me. And my grandfather would, would take me to these different people's homes and, uh, and to these, like, musicians. And he'd say, listen. And he'd take me to clubs. And the club would say, nah, we're not interested. And you kid, the kid's not 19. He's not drinking age and my grandpa would say listen if you let my grandson get up here and do a set with your house band uh you let him do two or three songs i'll come in and i'll fix all your hot water heating and i'll uh, i can see <laughs> your you know what i mean your plumbing is busted and i'll and and literally that's what he did he he would trade his services and he would walk me in and and or i would go and do there'd be like jazz nights at the ramada inn and there'd be this you know 17 18 year old kid sitting there me with all of these you know vancouver jazz singers who had been doing it for 30 years and people like uh, June Katz and Kenny Coleman. And you may not know those people, but to me, they were super huge in my life. You know, I looked up to them and, and then I would get my chance to go up and sing, you know, all of me and be flat. And I can tell you that I knew that because it was the only song I knew the key for, you know, <laughs> like a, the arrow would say to me, Hey, if you go sing it, sing all of me and be flat. So I would do that. And, and then it sort of shifted to where I got my first kind of house gigs in the clubs and then, uh, and then at 2021, 20, I started doing that. And then instead of the musicians hiring me, I started hiring the musicians and I put together a band and then I started getting privates and that, uh, and dude, this happened till I was 26. Yeah. I mean, I moved to Toronto. I did stuff across the border. I do clubs up and down through the States and I did musical musicals. I did Broadway. I did anything I could do, man. just anything, hoping that there would be that, that person or that step. And by the time I got to 25 or 26, uh, it just wasn't happening. And, uh, and I knew I was already passing the age of maybe getting signed because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't 21, 24, you know. And so uh, I started to run out of money. And um, I just, uh, 
I was in Toronto working and I had run out of money to come home. And, um, and basically the, the, I got this gig, this corporate gig. And I had a, a record called Babalu, an independent record I had made. And I was like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go and do this gig. It paid about four grand or five grand. It got, you know, got me to fly home. And I, I was going to, I actually wanted to go back to, uh, to Vancouver and I was going to go to school, um, to take up journalism. I had a lot of friends that were journalists and music journals. And I thought, well, this would be good. You know, I can still, you know, I can be creative, but I can talk to people in this business that I like. And I can, in my own way, find maybe a, a way to make some money and have a good life. And, uh, and so I'd done this private gig and at the gig, I had like one of the last copies of the CD and I gave it to this, this guy at the gig. And uh, <laughs> I remember when I handed it to him, I said like, oh, I hope you like this. And I made a joke where I took it and I took his drink and I said, if you don't like it, it makes a good coaster for your, for your drink. And I put it on his drink. And then the next morning uh, I got a call. The manager I had at the time got a call and it happened to be a guy named Michael McSweeney, who was the right hand man to the, to uh, the prime minister of Canada, uh, the previous prime minister. And this is a long story, but you know, like all of these little things. And then I, went and I met the prime minister's wife, Mila, and she was really kind to me. And she said, my daughter, Caroline is getting married and um, we'd love to have you come and sing. And uh, she said, well, we'll pay for you to come down. And, and I was so down at that point. I think I had sort of in my head, I think I had, I don't want to say given up, but I think I'd realized that this probably just wasn't going to happen for me. Um, yeah. The expectations just, yeah, when, you know, it's yeah, funny. It's I had gone to every record company, man. I had gone to every agency and they, every single one, including the one that I signed with, had the exact same answer for me. The, the exact. It was like, I, you know, at one point I thought they had like called each other. <laughs> what was it? They would say, you're a really, really talented kid and you're a really good person. You know, this, this is going to happen for you. I just don't see it happening here because we just don't, we just can't see uh, the, 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 this working, uh, in a commercial way, uh, we wouldn't know how to market this or how we could, you know, make our money back. And so, you know, good luck. And it was like, uh, I mean, it, before we get to this next, then this next phase, cause obviously this is, this gets really juicy after this, but really the juiciest part for any musician is like this moment right before things click, because we're always like if man you always try to to convince an artist like stop following trends because you're just going to be part of the trend you'll never be michael buble if you follow the trends but you'll also never like that's the same advice that i wish a&r people took and labels would take is like if you don't take a chance on a michael buble you'll never get a michael buble you're just going to keep getting the you know, you're just trying to chase trends and trying to get the next one. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll get the the second or third wave of a of a movement, and then it's gone. But it's and it's but it's human nature. I mean, it is just human nature to to want to to categorize and to want to follow what's successful. I mean, as songwriters, I mean, you guys. I mean, like guys like you, Ross. That 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 is your job. Like you sit and you write and go to writing rooms. That is the, the toughest part is not t- 
to follow is not to go, okay, this is what's happening now. Because by the time you write that song, you've already missed, it's over. The trend yeah. is done. It's like, you have to, to, to be so unique so that you're ahead. And that's like, when I talk, when you talk about people like Max Martin, that just trips me out, man. It's like, how, how do they do that? You know what I mean? Like how, here's, it- here's, here's a question about how do they do that? Uh, it, it's, a cousin of this, but I'm always curious. I've mentioned about you uh, and some of your Canadian peers, and I don't understand what it is about Canada. But Canada has, you know, I think we t- I talked about this with Paul Anko when we interviewed Paul. But um, you know, you have like the weekend, and you have Bieber, and you have Drake. And you have Celine Dion. And Sean Mendez is doing pretty well. Sean yeah. Mendez. You have these. You have people who are trendsetters. It just like annihilate charts and who are just like they literally create genres. What is it about Canada that allows for Canadian musicians to thrive when there's you guys are like a tenth of the population? You know, or like, they, yeah, there are more people in California than there are in Canada. Yeah, so why is it that, that Canada creates... What did Paul say, Ross, when you asked Paul? I, I think it was him that I asked, cause it, you know, or it was like, a, <laughs> uh, who was it? Like, uh, uh, I, I, I can't remember who I asked the question to, but I thought it was him. There's just so many. Daniel Lenoir or some, some yeah, yeah, yeah. other Canadian legend who's like, how, how does this country that is so small create not just like... Uh, it's not just competition. It's not... It's, it's no, the for same sure. I mean, you, you, you mean like look at Diana Krall. There's someone who's elite in her in her yeah. genre. She's, I mean, she is one of the ba- the the greatest jazz uh, pianist, singers, artists on the planet. Yeah. So I, I, I think I have a theory, but I don't. I would never tell you that that's the reason. I mean, I it's just a theory. Okay. What's and the and it's kind of a bit multifaceted, but I'll I'll, I'll try to be uh, succinct. It is. Partly that we are a nation of observers. Mm. We have our own distinct culture and humor, but a big part of that distinction is being the mouse beside the elephant. We watch a lot of American television and listen to a lot of American music. We're inspired by American cinema, movies, humor, uh, patterns. And I think many of us learn how to cop it or what it is that uh, that works for America. And by the way, most of the time, what works for America works for the rest of the world because as trendsetting goes, America is usually the trendsetter yeah. in music or cinema. Um, you know, we, we find so many times that, that that's the case, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're from South Africa or Asia. And I, I'm lucky enough to travel over the world, so I see it, you know what I mean? I... I see that these things start in America. And by the way, if it's cool enough for America and it's working in America, then guess what? It, it, it's probably great enough. It's good enough here in Greece or, you know, or Beijing or wherever. And so I think that's one part of the answer. And I think the other part of the answer is simply that it's hard here in Canada. Yeah. Um, because there, there is a lot of competition. I know that sounds strange, but even in this small country, there's a lot of fierce competition. And the fact is, if you can find and scrap and scrape your way to the top of 
the heap and, and you can be, become recognized or noticed at being one of the best producers or the best writers, um, you know, by the time that that acknowledgement comes in your own country, this is going to be hard to explain, but I hope I'm explaining this right. My analogies are, are good enough, but it's like, it's like by the time you get to, to the, to, to be part of the cream here, and now you get your shot to go to America, you've had to, I mean, honestly, you've had to just show more, do more, prove more, uh, work as hard or, or show your, your work has to be as good as anyone in your whole country. And so by the time you get to America, it's like you, you've got your shit together pretty, pretty much. It's, it's, I, I, I used to compare it. I used to make an analogy when my friends would ask this question. And it's very much like if you see athletes, you know, let's say like a hockey player, many times when you watch a hockey player doing his, his skating drills, they'll put a parachute behind him. And you'll watch this skater and he'll just be, he'll be going hard. And of course the parachute, you know what I mean? Completely stops him and stops his inertia. And he, he, you know, and then all of a sudden they unclick the, the, the parachute or the weight and the dude just takes off. Mm. And I feel like that's the best analogy I can make as a Canadian huh. musician entertainer. It's like you fight your way. Oh God, please let them just recognize this talent. You work it and you, you somehow get to a point where your country is going, yeah, this guy's pretty good. This is a, and it's like, and then you get to like step over the border and somebody gives you a chance to go on the today show or to, to meet Max Martin or to meet Ross Golan. And all of a sudden the parachute comes off and it's like, Oh shit. Now, you know what I mean? Now this, this feels easy now. I can fly. Well, that's a good transition to, um, this famous dinner. Uh, you're at, you're, you know, you're in front of the prime minister, you're singing, and there's a guest there that changes everything. And, yeah, and that kind of is the moment that really goes from, uh, thinking you might have to go back home to go to college to be a journalist to actually the next step. So, so I'll let you keep going on the, the story. Well, so that meeting I had with the, the, prime, the Honorable Prime Minister, Brian Mulroney's wife, Mila, she said, listen, I'd love you to sing this, this wedding. And I, I, I was so, uh, it meant a lot to me to be asked. But at the same time, I had sort of given up and I was like, oh, God, you know, you're going to go sing at a wedding. And she said, well, David Foster is going to be there. And um, she said, you know, we, we've had a hand in introducing David to some other great Canadian artists. And not that we've been completely responsible, but we've definitely, you know, fallen in love with young Canadian artists like Celine Dion. And they were part of that, you know. And of course, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So they were so sweet with me. And I, I actually got to stay with them. For, you know, they, they were just really good people to me. And um, I ended up at the wedding. I remember I had got up to sing, and I think I was singing like Mac the Knife or something. I was pretty terrified. And when I looked over to my left, there was the prime minister, and he had David Foster under his arm, not a headlock or anything, but just, you know, I could, you know, he was basically saying to David, look at this kid, look, check this out, you know, and David, we finished the thing, and David came up to me and he said, "Hey, hey, man, you know that's really impressive. You're really this is really authentic." And I said, "Oh, thank you." And he said, uh, "Hey, man, you want to come down to LA and you want to work on some some stuff?" And of course, I thought, "Oh my God, this is it. Hmm. I've made it." But the the problem with the story is that it was never going to be that simple, and it wasn't that simple because even when I went down to Los Angeles a week later, um, 
David wasn't sure. And uh, it was a huge meeting because as David used to say, you're on my radar. But dude, it was a, ye a year of me, you know, doing gigs and working with him and doing stuff. And, and I would say to him, you know, David, would you produce this record? And he said to me, you know, Mike, I don't think so. And, and at one point he finally just said, hey, dude, I love you, man. You're a good kid. Uh, you know, I really like you. You're really talented, but I'm never going to produce your record and I'm never going to, you're never going to get signed to Warner brother and Warner brothers. And he said, this is just, I just don't think this is, uh, he said the same thing everyone has always said. And, uh, so long story short, I kind of, he basically said, listen, I can make a demo, but like anyone else, if you want me to do this, you know what I mean? You'd have to come up with the finances for it and blah, 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 blah. And so uh, my manager at the time was a really great lady named Bev Delich. And uh, she went and we pounded the pavement in Vancouver and we went and raised the money, which David Foster was very surprised about. And I came back to Los Angeles and I said, hey, David, I have the money. And I could see that look of, oh, shit, now I have to, <laughs> now I have to do this. So uh, he said, okay, Mike, I'll make, you know, we'll do six songs. And he said, um, I'll take it, you know, and he says, we'll see what happens. And then about a week into it, uh, after it was about 9-11, I guess, or something just after 9-11, um, Vegas had, you know, been shut down and everything. And uh, he called me and he said, Jay Leno needs an opening act. Would you go down and be an opening act for Jay? And I did. I started working with Jay. And, and while I was there opening for Jay, one morning he called me and said, called me real early and I drank all night. So I was not in good shape. And he mm -hmm. called me about nine o'clock in the morning. He says, Hey, you want to come to my villa? And uh, he says, I want you to come and sing something for Paul Anka. And of course, again, I shit my pants. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? Paul Anka? You know, oh my God. So we went into this villa and they literally rolled in a piano and David said, okay, go ahead, sing something. And he says, what do you want to hear him sing? Paul says, why did you sing my way? You know my way? He says, yeah. So David played, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. And I sang, and now the end is near. And I, I sang it and Paul said, uh, you know what, David? That's great. You know, what do you need? And, and uh, he said, I'd like to come in and do this with you. And then I made the record and I don't even know how to get into this. The whole thing, I started to make the record and the thing fell through, Ross. It did? It did, dude. It fell through. Something what? happened with the investors or something. I don't even remember what it was. I just remember that David took me aside and uh, he said, this isn't going to work. He said, uh, you know, the investors, it just doesn't work. And he said, uh, I'm sorry, kid. It's just not going to happen. And I had been well into making like, I had made like six demos. And I had then, of course, told the guys that were going to invest from Vancouver that they weren't needed. And so they were out. And uh, that was it. My dream came to a crashing halt right there. I sat in Malibu at his studio. I, my manager at the time wasn't there, so I didn't have a, a drive home. And I was devastated. When I say devastated, I mean, it's one thing never reaching your dream, but it's another thing having it there right in your grasp and then it's gone. And uh, so David was working with a, a producer uh, named Umberto Gatica. Uh, who's a really incredibly talented Chilean guy and great producer on his own right. And, uh, and he says, you need a ride home? And I says, yeah, I do. And he could tell I was just done. Like I was on the, ver I mean, listen, man, I literally was on the verge of tears, you know? So Humberto drove me back. I was living in West Hollywood. It was, I was renting this little place and, uh, 
Humberto, I remember he parked the car and he said, let me just, he says, listen, he said, David doesn't like, <laughs> he said, David Buster doesn't like confrontation. He said, so here's what you're going to say to him. And he literally gave me all the things that I was going to say to him. And so uh, a few days later, two or three days later, I had happened to be hired to sing at Kenny G's. I think it was Kenny G's anniversary of his wedding or something. And so David and I had come in to set up and I says, David, can I speak to you? And I pulled David aside and I basically regurgitated what Umberto had said. What I was said, it? David, it was basically, hey, David, we have something so special here, so unique. Uh, these songs are so good. Please, David, please give me a chance. Get me into a meeting with Tom Wally at Warner Brothers, who was the president at Warner Brothers at that time. Give me one chance to play my case, man. And if it doesn't work, I will never bug you again. Because I was a ball breaker. Like, I, was, I, I wasn't giving up, you know. And David, you know, at points, David got, would get mad. He'd say, dude, get lost. Like, get out of my face, you know. And I said, please, just let me, give me a chance. And uh, David, you know, poor David, like, you know, that's a scary thing. He, he, he was pretty new as an executive there. He had had success with Josh Groban. But, I mean, it was a lot for, to ask a guy to go, hey, put your balls on the line for me, yeah. and, you know, especially if he wasn't sure. But obviously he had enough faith in me. And so he called me a few days later and he said, all right, uh, he, his, 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 I won't say the exact words, but it was, let's see what a 26-year-old blank <laughs> know, knows about the music business. He says, we got a meeting with Tom. So nice. I... A couple of days later, I was dying, man. I just I went down to, the, to Warner there, down in Burbank. I mean, my first time ever walking into that building and with that history. And I just, I, I clearly remember walking in and seeing the photos on the wall. And I mean, I just remember being so intense. It was like Green Day, Madonna, and and Leonard Cohen, you know what I mean? And Neil Young and like Prince. Prince. And just like, yeah. oh my God, oh my God, like, oh my God. And just... Uh, dying, and then I got into the. I remember we walked in and uh, to the to Tom's office, his cor big corner office, and I I didn't know what to expect. And this really handsome, you know, young executive, you know, with a lot of you know, you could tell he had that kind of just a the X factor and whatever. And he he um, and it was so funny because he walked in and he smiled at me and he said hi. And uh, he sat down and he said, um, so why, why should we sign you? He said, we already have Sinatra on reprise. Mm. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And, uh, and I, I didn't, I mean, obviously I had no idea that question was coming. And I said, Mr. Wally, I said, uh, Sinatra's dead. I said, don't, you know, I say that he's my hero. Don't bury this music with him. Give me a shot. Give me one. Give me a chance, and I will, I will bust my ass for you. I love this. I, I'm, I want to be a custodian of this. I, I think I can do it as well or better than anyone else. Give me a shot to go out there and, and do it, man, and and continue, you know, the legacy of my heroes in this music. And, uh, and then we listened to the song, and he was very stoked. He didn't say much, David you know, tried to stand up for me and David sort of played his case for me and I, he was very brave about it. And then, uh, I called him. I actually, I flew my grandpa down to LA because we left the meeting and I remember looking at David and I said to David, Oh man, I said, was that wasn't good. Was it? And he said to me, you know, kid, I, I don't know. I, he said, honest to God, I, I did not get a read. I don't know. He said, but listen, he said, you have, he said, you were great. You were honest. He says, you, you know, he said, I think there's nothing more that you can do, man. He says, you've done it all. And if it doesn't work, dude, you know what? It wasn't meant to be. And uh, so I flew my grandpa from LA. He came down to stay with me and I was down in the gym running about four days later and the doors flew open <laughs> and my grandpa was crying. And he, he said, sunshine, sunshine. He said, you're, you're with Warner. And uh, that was it. I went upstairs. I ran upstairs. I got up the elevator, shaken, you know. And uh, and David Foster came on the phone, and uh, and it was one of the sw- really. It's funny. I get emotional about it because it was, you know, um, oh, like listen. I I will love David Foster till I die, because at, you know what I mean. At my lowest, I I saw a re- the real compassionate, beautiful guy that he is. And he, uh, so I got on the phone and I says, hi. And he said, hey, Mike, man. He said, um, you're never going to have to worry. He said, because you're part of the Warner family and we got your back and we're going to make a great record and your dreams are about to come true. And I just, it was like, oh my God, this is happening. 
you know? And even then, so Ross, funny. it wasn't done because even then, I made the first record and I, we went and sat in a meeting and they said to me, listen, we love you, but if you don't sell a certain amount of copies of this first record, of course, you don't get another shot. That's it. You know what I mean? You, you, we got to, you know, got to see that this what works. Was it? Do you remember what the number was at that time? I do, like- I do. And what's weirder is the woman who was doing the numbers, who, whose job it was to basically guesstimate uh, the number that I would sell in my career. I believe the number that she felt that would be sold in my career were, was 60,000 to 150,000 copies. I believe it was that. And uh, what's strange about that is she now works with me. She's worked as a part of my management office for the last, I don't know, man, 12, 15 years. And, uh, and I'll say... Do you and, call and, her out on it still? Like, do you guys, I imagine like you're in the management office. You guys are like having coffee next to each other, like uh, 60,000, well, eh? It's cute because I said to her, not that long ago, I was like, Joe, I go, Joe, what, what were you thinking? Like, you know what I mean? Like 60,000 copies, Joe. And, uh, and she goes, my chicken. She goes, for fuck's sake, your first EP was Spider Man. <laughs> she goes, what did you, what did you think you were gonna? She says, of course, none of us thought that that was gonna be. She says, come on, dude. What, what was this? This weird little chubby dude with big hair doing these? You know what I mean? She's like, no one, no one thought. She's like, come on. But here's the thing. Like by the time you know, you've released at this point, you've released a lot of music. In your life, you had, you know, independently and you're signed to Warner and now you've got David Foster. I, I assume that the, you know, this is going to be the moment, but you've also had nine mo- times where it's like, this is going to be the moment. And then they're like, you know, it's like, no, it's not. And somebody puts the, you know, puts a stop sign in front of you. And it's not like it was easy. It's not, I, there's no way you came out with the album and the next day it was the biggest album in the world. By the way, that's the funny had, part. Like I remember. to learn. In in West Hollywood, running down because there used to be this. I used to stay at the uh, what's the hotel called? The little like it's a lot of the artists stay there. It's like the boutique kind of hotel. Oh on, yeah, uh, uh, the Le Petit, like right in West Hollywood, right near the, yeah, like the, the coffee bean is right kind of beside yeah, it. Yeah, right. Oh, oh, you're thinking of um. Oh my god, why am I so bad at this? The uh, Chateau Marmont. No, 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 not as cool. You're thinking the small one over. It was like it, was like, it looked like almost a motel. Anyway, I remember yeah, like yeah. I ran. It was like I think it was like a Sunday maybe, and I remember running because the record had been out for a week, and I ran to the to buy the billboard because I wanted to see like if I was on billboard. And I remember flipping, and I think, dude, I may be wrong. If you, you could research this and probably correct me, but I believe I was 198 or 189 or 100 something like that. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I was like, yeah, it was, it was huge for me. But it's funny because it didn't, it didn't work in America. It wasn't like, it was okay. Like that first record, it, those first months of release, it was, eh, it, but, but yet in Africa, in um, Australia, South Africa was big, the Philippines. And it was like, it was happening in these, sort of countries way outside of America. And so that's what I did. I just went and just, and uh, a lot of it was Jay Leno's advice and my manager, Bruce Allen, who had helped to build Brian Adams career the same way by, you know, going international and just taking off to where he was wanted. And I remember when I, when I was opening for Jay Leno, uh, who was also really great with me. 
I said to him once, I said, like, do you have any advice for me? And, uh, and he basically said, yeah, man. He said, go, go to their backyards. He said, don't, don't expect them to come to you. He said, go as far as you have to go, go wherever you have to go. He said, if you go to their backyards and you become tangible, they will take ownership of you. And it was great advice. Yeah, that hustle's real. And there's a, a real one-on-one where you can see the, you see the, if you're talented and you're actually going to places to perform and they want to see you, it it works mm-hmm. tenfold versus I think people still think that they can get a following by playing shows randomly. Yes. And I think that that's really difficult versus if there's a pocket of 10 people and they love you and you go and you perform for them, they'll bring a friend the next time. And that was and like, it, I was lucky you know. because I had Warner setting it up where like, dude, I was, I mean, even after selling like a million records and having success in certain places, they would still call me and say, um, you want to come to London? You want to do a showcase? You want to go to France? You want to go to Paris? And I would show up in a little hotel lobby and they would invite six or seven or eight, you know, TV bookers or a couple big journalists. And I would do a half an hour showcase. There's, I guess some of the questions I have is, you know, it's one thing when, when you are successful in the Philippines and you, and you're doing these kinds of shows. It's awesome. It's all great, yeah. but it's still not the same thing as being successful in the U.S., which was your goal. You know, along with you know, obviously Canada, you had some following already. But like, once all of a sudden things really take off, you know, I I don't know. Is feeling good like the first? What's the first like hit where everyone was like, oh, that's that's the hit. Well, it's interesting, man. Like that's a that's another part of this discussion because, you know, when I made that first record, I I I felt and I knew I was in no position to uh, negotiate. I remember sitting on that first record and saying, you know, I'm I'm a songwriter, and uh, I remember David would laugh and he would say, Hey, man, well, when you do your for your solo record, you can you can do that um, because I was just it was like here here's what you're gonna do you're gonna sing these songs that we've chosen for you. And uh, these are, you know what I mean? These are the, the most successful sort of covers. And uh, I remember saying, no, I'm a, I'm a songwriter. You know, I got these songs. And, um, and it, didn't, it wasn't a natural, I, I think they didn't understand the fit of it. But you're a crooner. You know what I mean? What do you mean you're a writer or songwriter? No, 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 no. You can't have it both. You're uh, Tony Bennett, uh, Sinatra, uh, you know what I mean? They're not songwriters. Elvis Presley, these are great singers and good entertainers, but they are, you know, we take other people's songs and, okay, and you, and you interpret those. And so I had a bunch of songs and I remember, it's funny, man, I remember having moments, right? I mean, I, once David heard or Umberto heard these songs, um, it's interesting, like I had, as as a young kid, I was writing them, and I got really lucky, Ross. Like the way that that life, that life, you know, moves, and some you know good things happen. But one of the one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was that we had made the record, and then we were going to go do showcases. Uh, we were going to start at the Cinegirl, Michael Feinstein Cinegirl, and I and I had my own band, uh, you know, kind of, of different guys that I had worked with through through Canada and America. And David and his sister James said, listen, we need, and, and actually my manager and Brandy Burswick, part of my management company said, we need to put you together. We, you need a band. 
you need a band of kids your age that, you know, get you, that have the same sensibility as you and that doesn't look weird. And you know what I mean? So I had these auditions and, uh, and I auditioned a bunch of horn players and, and rhythm section. And, uh, and in the audition, there was a kid that was, uh, that I, I wanted a uh, piano player. And, uh, and they said to me, uh, yeah, I said, this is the one I want. He's a, and by the way, to this day, he's a suit. He's a, he's a monster, uh, session. We went to school together. Yeah. And, uh, but no, I'm talking about the other guy. Cause I didn't want that guy. Oh, and they really? said, and yeah. And, and Alan Chang was, was, had, had, had audition and, and with him. And I was like, nah, I like this other guy. He seems more seasoned. And they were like, no, mm-hmm. no. Uh, Alan, I remember James Foster saying, no, Alan Chang, he's really, he, look how good looking he is. And, and I was like, I'm not, this is not the Backstreet Boys. Like I need an MD. I need a guy who can lead us. And, um, and how, I mean, God, like how stupid, what a, like, that's one of the greatest worst decisions that I've ever had made for me. Because one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was, was hiring Alan Chang. Because not only did I find uh, a guy who turned out to be one of the greatest jazz musicians and accompanists uh, who I think on the planet, but I ended up meeting my dream partner, my song, my, 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 my songwriting partner. And, uh, and we, he, we had both had ideas. We were both kids and we both had these songs that we'd been working on. And so for the next, you know, 15 years, we would, you know, to this day, we would write, write together. And one of the first ones we came up was with home. We wrote the song home. Um, and uh, of course we got, you know, it was a great hit for us and, and it helped that Blake Shelton covered it and it became a number one hit of country and it, it was covered by Westlife in England and that was a hit. And, uh, and then we wrote everything and we just continued to write together. And uh, like, I get, I mean, again, it's so crazy, man. There are so many artists that want to be writers and there are a lot of writers who want to be artists. Um, there really aren't a lot of people who have, you know, home and, uh, you know, they they just don't have number one songs that that are covered by other people. It's a dream scenario for most writers to have. Yeah, and it was and it was a dream scenario to have co-writers like Alan Chang and Amy Foster Gillis and and Amy Gillis, excuse me, not Gillis anymore, but Amy Foster and um, and uh, especially early on Jan Arden, who's a great, wonderful artist and. I just had this, these, this really um, safe and and really a, a loving atmosphere, right? To to sort of never be embarrassed or shy to share my ideas, no matter how simple or stupid. I mean, I I had never learned music theory, so I, I had always felt a little insecure, you know, because I didn't know how the correct way of writing a song was. I just knew I would. I felt this, and I. And they were very emotional for me. And I would, I knew that certain chords and voicings made me feel a certain way. And for me, it was like Alan Chang was this really um, empathetic, uh, kind, beautiful, smart. It was just like, dude, I can't tell you. It's like this, this match was made in heaven with us. And, um, he just brought so much to my life artistically that it was, it was like, you know, and it's weird too, because we would both like, I remember like we would just look at each other. We, you know, after haven't met you yet or other time, you know, we would like, 
we'd be at a restaurant. We just like look at each other and be like, this is fucking great. Crazy. Like, this is, is this crazy? Is this happening? Like, cause it never felt like we were songwriters, you know, we were, it was just like, you know, two dudes having beer and, and it just kind of would happen. Well, what's amazing about somebody who is so accomplished at um, at recording standards is that when you record the songs you write, they almost immediately feel like standards. You know, like I, I think that it would be hard pressed for somebody who doesn't know which songs were standards and which ones you wrote for them to pick out which ones were standards. Yeah, you know I wonder I mean? with the early stuff, probably. Because they, they would they would think that they're you've made some songs standards yeah. that weren't standards before, yeah. and some you've written songs that are well, not. Well, it was weird, Ross. Like you know, from us working on on nobody but me together and writing, there's this pressure because you're you know I'm I'm going to cover, I'm going to interpret some of the greatest songs ever written. That doesn't mean they're all standards, but I mean, right? Some of the greatest songs ever written, and so if you're going to write songs and now I'm going to have four originals on a record with say seven other songs, the pressure is on. Like it really is. The pressure is on to at least write something that can sit beside those songs and not seem offensive. You know, you know I mean? You, I, listen, and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm writing, you know, that God only knows, you know, but they, there's, they have to stand up in some way. They, have, they have to have the gravitas and the emotional honesty and, and hopefully the musicality of some of those great songs. It's, it's a weird thing, man. Like, I still live in the weirdest world. Like, I, I know we've talked about this a bunch, but it's like, you know, it's funny. I, so I'm started, I started to make this record with Greg Wells, you know? And even trying to... And Greg Wells gets it without me telling him, but even the explanation of how, you know, even trying to, to sort of talk about my plan for this record or my vision, it, I can only imagine to Greg Wells, it must sound so schizophrenic. You know what I mean? It, it, he, he must hear like me, you know, it's like, yeah, hey, you're going to do that song and then you're going to do this, this song too with that. And, um, Though he never said that, he to be honest, he said, "No, dude, I get this. I I get this, and I'm going to help to make it cohesive." And um, but your tone is what draws, what makes the through line in the in an album. I mean, I don't, I I really tend to not think that this is probably not correct, but in a way, song selection isn't what defines an artist's sound versus their tone. You know, I think like their tone and and if product if you if you're fortunate enough to have one producer or two producers work on most of an album, yeah. you know, it'll you'll you'll be that through line. It may seem schizophrenic to you, but the listener is not going to feel that way. They're going to think that they're just listening to a Michael Bublé album. Yeah, man, that's that's an interesting point. It's always it's funny because you want to you want to you always want to grow, right? You want to yeah, you want to grow and you want to like push your your limits and boundaries, and you don't like. So, like, dude, like, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll want to have really modern, poppy in the box house production, and I, that's what moves me. Like, I want on a certain pop song because, like, that's what I want to hear. I want it to be really tuned, and I want it to, ha- you know what I mean, have a really modern sound. And then I'll have people that will go, okay, but you know, you can't have it. It can't sound too 
weird and too modern because it's not not that you're going to fail at your attempt, but more, hey, people might think you're trying too hard. You know what I mean? People and that's, might hear that's the plus of being a songwriter versus being an artist is that you don't have to, you can jump genres and try to be, a, you know, be authentic in that genre and then jump. It's really hard for an artist to, to go and, you know, there are certain expectations that your audience has. Totally, man. And they do. Like for me, one of my favorite, I'm not saying it because it's you, but one of my favorite experiences ever of making a record was doing Nobody But Me with you guys. Because I, like for the first time with, with Johan Carlson and you, I, it's like I got to go for like everything that I had wanted. Like I, like I love hip hop and I love rap and I love like really, I like great pop music, you know? And, um, and it was a lot of fun to be able to feel like I had earned the right to sort of do it. I, well, love it. I mean, obviously we know that it's funny. That's a, that's a, a bit of a heartbreak for me for, in more ways than one, because we obviously, we made that record and I felt it was one of the best records I had ever, I had ever made. And I felt the songs were some of the best songs I had ever written. And, um, and of course, uh, my son was diagnosed, uh, with cancer, and uh, that was it. There was, I think I did one or two days of press and uh, that was the end. I never ever did another day. And of course, God knows what would have or could have happened, but it was always, you know, we put a lot of love into that record and, and we ha- obviously through nothing that we could have done, it, uh, it had the life that it had. But it, w- it was always, uh, it's, it still is. I talked to Alan about it a lot. It was like, um, I did what I had to do. There was no choice. Um, but I often wonder what might have been with uh, with those songs if I had had the chance to to do all the TV shows and do all the all the tour and you know what I mean and do the award shows and do all that stuff. So I'll never know, but I, I I'll never regret it either. It's, I did what I. Well, had. I mean, the experience. You know, well, uh, you know, I don't want to ignore. Noah and, and every you know everything that your your son went through and and the joy of watching him get better is amazing. Um, Thank you. Buddy. That, but the experience of making that album is super fun, which brings me to the next segment, which is yo, what would Johan Carlson ask Michael Bublé on "And the Writer Is," and um, he wants to know who's the best bongo hockey player. He kind of had. He didn't. He kind of win most. He's a very talented guy. He might actually be really good at bongo hockey. Was this, is a is a game that we came up with in the studio, and I think that we probably played as much bongo hockey in Brian Adams' studio as we did actually writing. Explain to our listeners what bongo hockey is. Ah. Uh, I remember I wanna, perfectly. So if you want me to, I I can. Yeah. No, you should do it because let's be honest, you have a great memory. So bongo hockey was done in a big, we had a big open studio, big massive studio place in a place called the warehouse that is a studio that Brian Adams built and and owns. And so we would, we had a big piano at the back of the room and we would go and we would work on whatever we were writing. We'd write, you know, start off with a verse and come up with, okay, this is a cool. And then because I, my, you know, I'm, I have the concentration of a gnat. I would be like, okay, now we play bongo hockey, which was basically 
we took a chair from the studio and we would put it against the back of the wall and then we would take bongos and we would put them on top of and rest them on top of the chair and then one of us would be the shooter and you'd stand about 20 or 25 feet away with a tennis ball and the other two guys would stand in front of the bongo <laughs> and i believe one of us would stand with because i'm right-handed you're left-handed I, I mean, we would just switch off, or you'd go backhanded. Off, yeah. yeah, and yeah. then so you'd get ten shots to try to hit the bongo, but as a defender, the two guys defending the bongo would have a chance to stop the tennis ball from hitting the bongo, and it, it was a joy. I mean, it was the greatest. I I always wondered if it could have become an Olympic sport. Yeah, it still can, and. You know, I will say his other question is is to ask when uh, when we can come up and write and play a little bit. So uh, I think that that's you know. Oh man, you know that someday I, I that's going to have to happen. That that would be. Um, you know, it's funny. I feel like we weirdly get so much done. So much we do we do great work because of how much fun it is. Well, okay, so there was one thing you said to me during that writing session that was really interesting. You said that, you know, this is like the fastest you've ever written a song. Yeah. And this comes from, um, you know, when you get in the writing circuit, you're used to, you know, a a rough draft in a day of a song. You know, Uh maybe you, some people are amazing, can do like four songs in a day. Some people can write a song in a week. But you're not somebody who just like spills out, songs you're somebody who really is pretty meticulous when you write songs so even though we're having fun that's all part of the process for you it was new like that was like just the process was absolutely uh, like very new for me because even when alan and i write together um many times it's like like okay so for the christmas record say alan had written a song called cold december night and he, I mean, this was his thing, man. It was like his baby. He had put all the work into it. And then like once he had almost all of it down, he, he brought it and said, what do you think of this song? And, and then we worked together. And this, this would just happen with certain songs. Like it was like um, the reason for me to write like that is because every song that I had written or, or for the most part, had started at such a personal place in such a personal way. I was emoting and I was singing about something that I was feeling or something that I was going through. And, um, you know, I would, I would get inebriated. Like I would just, that's how I, I mean, that was my process. I would, I would, you know, I would, I don't know how to, I don't want to, you know, I'm not like some pro drug guy or alcohol, but I would, I got kids, man. That's why I'm so like this now. I used to, t- I used to just be so much different about it, but now, of course, like drugs are bad, and yeah, exactly. Don't do any of that because kids, you'll die. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that's how I freed myself, man. And I would get to that place, and then I would, you know, I would just write. I'd sit on the piano, or I'd sit in the tape recorder, and I and I would just, you know, I would be really emotional, and I would come up, and those are the chords I knew. That's what helped tell the story, and this is what my story's about and I'm, you know, this is my heartache or this is the longing for love that I'm looking for. This is, you know, my, my revenge, you know? Um, So it became weird and, and exhilarating at the same time to 
like actually go into a room with other people in real time and like just write something because it never happened like that for me. The first time it ever happened, I was at my house in West Vancouver and Alan Chang and Amy Foster were with me. And I was, I can't remember why, but Alan was, you know, I, I really like this percussive Ding, 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 ding. I like this like percussive feel on the piano, this bounce. And, and Alan had started to come up with this cool, like really cool intro line. And, and I was starting to sing the melody. And, and I think Amy was like, you know what would be cool? Like, what about a song about, you know, that person, like, you know, that you've not met yet. Like that person that is there and exists, but, you know, just haven't met them yet. And it was like, okay, yeah. And that, that's the first time that anything had ever come together like that. And it was... And it was weird. It was grueling for me because all of a sudden I was having to accept the other writer's ideas. Ah. And I was, you know, and it was like, that's not the, that's maybe, that's not the chord that I would choose to, you know what I mean? And I kind of, and then, but you know, you find yourself at certain, I mean, I'm sure you do this all the time, dude. Like, cause now, now I do write like this with other people, but many times I'll walk out of a room and I'm like, that's awesome. This is awesome. We have something awesome. But for as many times as there's that, there's times where I walk out and I go, okay, I didn't want to be mean and I just wanted to be nice. And so when they, uh, when they, you know, when they said, what about this? What about this voicing? You know, I went, cool. Yeah. But really inside I felt like, no. And uh, I remember talking to, to Foster about it once and I said, David, it's hard for me to write like this with other people. And he said, yeah, of course it is. Compromise breeds mediocrity. Huh. <laughs> and, and, uh, I mean, I, that's, that's, that's an amazing statement. I, I think that there's, a, there's an element of that, and that's part of why I think if you want a unique song, write it with one person or write yeah. it on your own. Yes. There's no question that that... You do not need nine nine people in a room will just create a really vanilla song because that means everyone has to think it's cool. And isn't Whereas, that how so much is written now? It's like I can't tell you how many yes. Yeah, I just Yeah, don't. I mean that's where it's like why it's nice to have but you know, one or two people in a room is probably fine. And, but, and the, dude, you know, I also I also have to find that way not to be Canadian because it's a weakness. And it's actually, I hope it's okay that I tell this story, but so Michael Pollock, who was introduced to me uh, through a guy named Greg Saunders, who's a lovely guy. Uh, so Michael started, I, I, call, I got to know Michael and he's a really good, he's just such a, yeah. a beast and such a good, good guy. And he's, in all our conversations, he's been such a gentleman and you know what I mean? Just really uh, easy, easy going, easy to talk to. So he, I said to him, hey, man, send me stuff. Like, send me ideas or send me, you know. So one day he sent me a, a song, and uh, it, was, it was a good song, but it wasn't right for me. And so, uh, but I didn't know what to say, right? So I didn't, I didn't really answer. And uh, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, uh, I call him, and I'm like, hey, dude, uh, you know, hey, man, I'm working on the song that you had, and everything's great, and this is going to be great. I think you're going to really like it. And and he goes, uh, oh, that's great, Mike. He goes, uh, what? How about the song that I sent you? And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And dude, he, it's like he, he went from like this soft, sweet guy to all of a sudden, like he was like a New Yorker. And he was like, yeah, listen, dude, um, listen, man, if, you, if I send you a song and you don't like it, just fucking tell me you don't like it, okay? 
<laughs> like, uh, you're not helping me, dude, by, by being a, like a Canadian wuss about it. Like, you know, he's like, just, he's like, <laughs> he's, listen, he's it doesn't right. help me. He's like, just be straight with me, dude. He goes, listen, when I work with writers, okay, I, I like, if something's not great for, I'm telling them, I'm like, I just destroy them. And he goes, and you know what? They might think I'm a dick that day, but I'm telling you now, four years down the road, they're going to say, my God, that was the greatest lesson. And thank you, Michael, for being real with me. And he was, he's so right. Like he is, I, I've told the story to a few of my friends because it was really, um, it made me even love him more. I was like, yeah, dude, I, I needed to not be. So it really helps. A lot of artists are afraid to tell songwriters what they think of songs, and it gets complicated. You know, yes. it's like leaving the room where being like, I wouldn't have chosen those chords. That doesn't necessarily help anybody out because, especially if you're the one singing it. Yes. You know, it's like, it's okay to be honest as you go. It's such um, a, and it's such a weird because no one's right and no one's wrong. I mean, it is all we have are our instincts. Yeah. And uh, it's funny, man. One of the reasons that I I started like trying to go and work with other writers and other producers is because I've spent the last twenty years um, basically imposing my will, you know. And that's I mean, it's I have my instincts, but I really wanted a chance to do something where I let go a little bit, yeah. and and um, not that it wouldn't be something that I love, but maybe something that sounds a little more fresh to people. Um. Before we, you know, a few more things and then we'll go. But you, uh, you play a lot of arenas and you sell them out, and you were once trying to sneak into bars. Um, uh, we haven't really talked about your live tour stuff and your live shows, but you're still like that's still, you know, your bread and butter, so to speak. You know, along with writing and recording. Yeah. Uh, um, Please, dude, I make hundreds of dollars through streaming. <laughs> Dude, that's everything. I know, that's just man. a realist. Uh, and and you make more than hundreds of dollars from doing shows. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny, man. I it's uh, I would be happy to play for clubs. I mean, I I like I love I love making music and I love doing it with my friends and I love um, the interaction with the crowd. I miss it a lot, um, and. Uh, I miss it a lot. Like yeah. I, I feel like I get a lot out of it. I feel like those people that uh, have brought me through really rough times and dark times. And so, uh, I, I always see it as like this opportunity to, to, I know it sounds cliche, but to really like show them, uh, you know, they changed my life, dude. Like I, 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 I live this life and I have this, um, you know, I have all the things I have because of them. So it's it's awesome for me to go in and have an actual genuine joy and appreciation and be able to throw a party like that and to take people away for a couple hours and give them something because they I, there's no possible way that I can ever, ever um, give them back what they've given me. You know, there's just, just no way. All right, we're going to go to the next segment. Five for five, I'm going to list five things. Just tell me something that comes out the top of your head. Yeah. All right, let's start with uh, David Foster. Uh, uh, I'm a foster child. He's uh, my one of my heroes, and uh, uh, if if everyone knew how beautiful he was inside, they love him as much as I do. Do do all you superstar people who came from Foster say that? Is that like a thing where do you guys all say, like, "Oh yeah"? Like when you see like Josh, are you guys like, "Yeah, 
you're a foster child too. No, like, no, <laughs> no, no. I just thought it was funny to say. I, you know what? Um, I hope that that. I think, dude, I think I've seen David in in a bunch of uh, circumstances where, uh, like, you know, we all want to be tough. You know, we all want to like show how cool we are, and you know, there's that kind of insecurity that all of us have uh, because you know. Because how cool could it be to be a really good guy? You know, you want to be a badass and I'm dangerous, you know. Um, but I have seen the real David and I don't think I've ever, I can say this, I don't think I've ever met uh, a, a mogul or someone who is at that level, elite level in their business who has made as much time for young artists uh, and producers and writers as he has. Like, And you never hear about it, but... All these years that I've worked with the man, I can't tell you how many how many people have he's he's walked them into a studio and really just tried in any way he could to to give them advice or to show them the path or and uh, I actually it was always weird I I would actually ask him like you know dude like doesn't this make you you know doesn't this ever isn't it become taxing and he'd say no man people did it for me I wouldn't be here. so he's I, I know the, the best of him he's a good dude. Let's go with Alan Chang. Uh, my brother, my family. Uh, again, my probably one of my musical heroes. Um, I wish that uh, I hope one day to be as talented as he is. And as, and as dark. He's dark. Oh, he's dark, man. We call him Changry. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> he's he, he, Alan's not Alan's Alan's a a, so a, a beautiful onion. He's he's layered and he's complicated and he's beautiful and uh, you know man I don't know I don't know if he if he's gonna what his what he wants for his future if he's gonna continue to come with me on the road uh, if he you know a lot of these times road guys they you know they go oh it's too much for me and and they want to do their own thing but um, you know I I can't tell you what reality is but I can tell you that in my fantasy um, he is my my partner for life, man. He's my Bernie Toppin or my Elton John or my, I don't know what you want to call it. He's, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my like, uh, yin and chang, man. <laughs> Let's go, uh, Brian Adams. Uh, stepbrother. He's like literally like a stepbrother. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you can also then go to your manager next. Yeah, I mean, my Brian. Brian is like my stepbrother, but what's weirder is it's like, man, it's like that was as a kid from Vancouver. I mean, I was there was no bigger Brian Adams fan. Like I knew every song. I reckless and cuts like a knife were like, I mean, man, it was just a big inspiration for me. And so getting to sign with Bruce Allen, who is like a dad to both of us. Uh, is was is weird. Like even to this day, like I talked to Brian on FaceTime the other day, and we were just shooting the shit and catching up. But I think it's probably weird for Brian more than it, it ever will be for me because even though you know, like it's we're friends and he's Brian, I still like there's still that 13 year old kid that like I look at him and I'm like fuck you Brian Adams man fuck I love your shit man god damn it I love your stuff like I love I love everything about that dude like I love that I loved his songwriting him and Jim Valance wrote some of the greatest like 
Dude, like what, the best is yet to come is one of my favorite songs of all time. And I can go down the list and he would make it on the list. He'd be like a Desert Island disc. And then his sense of his voice, that grass, like the way that he sings and it makes it sound like it's so simple and easy. And he's like got a huge range. Of, anyway, I'm a fan. I'll always be a fan. I'll be a fan. It's weird because I now I, I like I have to sort of try to compartmentalize my fandom and then like this being like the step kid of Bruce with him. It's weird. Your, it's always going to be weird. Your wife. Uh, my much, much better half. Um, you know, you find out who people are when the shit hits the fan. And I found out that my wife uh, is my hero. I don't know what else to say. She is, I, if I had, if I had known on my wedding day that, I was going to end up with somebody uh, as uh, as good and as, you know, man, I, I, I wish I would have married her 10 years before. I wish I would have known her, but she would have been 11. So that would have been. <laughs> um, the three kids. Oh, my. Well, you know, they're my life. They're my life. They're my life. They're my happiness. They, along with my wife, they anchor me. Um, I'm able to have perspective in my life. I'm able to, to uh, bring myself back from the brink when I'm worried about what people think of me or how, if this record is gonna work or will I sell the tickets or is it time to go back to nightclubs, you know? And sometimes it takes just to look at them and to go, you know what? None of that shit matters at all. And it doesn't matter. It really doesn't in the scheme of things. Well, thank you for doing this podcast, my friend. Thank you for uh, having me, man. I, I'm going to tell a quick anecdote before we end. But I, I've mentioned this the time we've spent together. You know, the first time we spent together in, in, in Vancouver, and, you know, we show up and there are tickets on our, our bed in the hotel to go see um, the Canucks play, and their seats are incredible and I, I'm a hockey player and Johan's Swedish so he likes hockey and you know we show up to the studio and the next night or the next day you have a have people picking us up and we're going to to the Giants arena that you're a, a, a part owner of the team and, and we're playing hockey with jerseys with our names on it and this is all part of our writing session my day, <laughs> yeah. you know and when you're saying, you know, you, you have fun and that's um and that's part of the joy of writing songs. I, I've I've been writing songs for a long time with a lot of different artists and I and it's rare that artists treat songwriters so well. Um but it wasn't really that that sticks with me as much as like making sure we stop by the hospital. And this is before I think this before we knew anything about no was, you were still yeah. you were still already stopping by the hospital to do good things as part of the session even and and then there was this time where it was raining it was pouring rain and there was a I feel like this is real it was raining outside and I'm pretty sure you ran down with an umbrella because there was a woman getting into a car who didn't have an umbrella. Like you like ran out to like make sure somebody got, I don't know if you remember that. It was like no. this moment where it was like, that's like a cliche of like what a nice guy does. Yeah. 
Like you'd watch, you'd watch people walk outside and you see them in the rain and they get wet and you're like, that's a person getting wet. Michael Bublé doesn't run outside to go and make sure that person's dry. And I feel like that's such a good analogy for, I feel like our relationship and who, who you are to a lot of people where, you, you know, we've each had some things in our lives where we've called to check up on each other. Mm-hmm. And you come in with a, an umbrella. And it just means a lot to me, man. Oh, dude, I love you, man. Thank you, buddy. So, um, I love you. You know what's weird, dude? I, and I, not to get all mushy, but um, it's so cool to have, like, to, when you love somebody and you see them doing well. Because weirdly, man, every time that I see you have success, every time you write a hit song, every time your, your Broadway, you know what I mean? Your Broadway show goes, I, I don't know. I feel like it's like, I know it sounds weird to say this because it's not the right way, but it's like, I don't know, man. It's like one of my kids did. <laughs> no, I love it, man. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it is my success. I, I absolutely, um, I don't know. It's a cool yeah. feeling, man. It's a beautiful feeling to have nothing but love. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.